Hi, I'm Rick Steves. It's been about 150 years now since Dr. Livingstone failed to find the source of the Nile River. But now a few hardy souls can finally claim to having seen the headwaters of the world's longest river. One of them is a remarkable woman who's played the part of a Bond girl in the movies and is probably best known as a co-star on the Britcom Absolutely Fabulous. Joanna Lumley joins us in a moment on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us what 4,000 miles of the Nile River had to show her, including the moment she finally got a glimpse of the river's notorious crocodiles. It wasn't until we reached Uganda where we saw them basking in all their majestic glory, keeping their mouths wide open to let the cool air flow into their bodies and to see them slipping with a slight bubble from the nostril into the river and then just slip, 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 and you think, ooh, I'll keep my hand out of the water. We'll also open up the phones to hear where listeners like you are traveling. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. The world's longest river has been the lifeline for North Africa longer than recorded history. It's true, the Nile River was the conduit for the spread of advanced societies from present-day Sudan, Ethiopia, and Egypt thousands of years ago. And even though Egypt's latest round of political strife has brought that country's important tourism industry to a halt, the Nile continues to nurture the land as it always has on its 4,000-mile run to the Mediterranean Sea. Long before the space race of the 1960s, explorers in the 19th century set their sights on being the first to locate the true source of the Nile. Now, with a little help from GPS and inflatable powerboats, a handful of determined adventurers have actually been able to locate the very place where the waters that feed the Nile originate. One of those select few to journey all the way to the headwaters of the Nile is a remarkable British woman named Joanna Lumley. She's been honored with the Order of the British Empire, she's a fellow in the Royal Geographical Society, and she's even considered a national treasure in Nepal for her work on behalf of Gurkha veterans. She also happens to be an accomplished actress with roles in dozens of British TV shows and in the movies. She was one of James Bond's girls and appears in Martin Scorsese's The Wolf of Wall Street. But you probably know Joanna Lumley for portraying the beehive-wearing, middle-aged party girl Patsy Stone on the BBC comedy Absolutely Fabulous. She joins us right now on Travel with Rick Steves to take us up the Nile, as seen on public TV in her four-part travel special, Joanna Lumley's Nile. Joanna, thanks for being here. Honestly, Rick, wasn't that a treat, though, to be allowed to be given a program saying, would you like to follow the Nile? And first of all, the idea was to start at the source of the Nile and go to the Mediterranean. Then we thought it actually would be much more interesting to start at the Mediterranean, where the great river tips itself out, and to follow it creeping, creeping back, the way that over the centuries people have tried to find the source of the Nile by following the Nile and always being grounded. We thought it would be thrilling because, of course, we now do know where the source of the Nile is, kind of. Joanna, how many borders did you cross to go from the mouth of the Nile all the way to Rwanda? Well, when we got into the Sudan and got to Khartoum, we then went up into Ethiopia to bring, as it were, the Blue Nile back down to Khartoum. But thereafter, we wouldn't because it was a very uh, unsettled time in the Sudan at the time and we weren't allowed to go into the interior at all. So we then had to go down to fly down to Uganda and come across north into the Sudan up to Juba to do that journey from there to see the Great Sud. Oh, I noticed that on your map, that you went down the Blue Nile and then you cut over, skipping a bit of the White Nile, and that was because of political instability. Oui, I would say. I love that start in your show when you're with those guys on that rustic boat, and then they sort of declare, we've left the Mediterranean, and now we're in the Nile. We're in the Nile. And everywhere that that great mighty river flows, it's treated almost as a kind of god, 
Well, you can understand this because it's running through some very, very barren land, very dry land, and it brings wherever it comes. It brings crops and you know, fresh air and date palms and things. It brings water for the animals. I mean, the Nile's much more than Egypt, but when you think about Egypt, Egypt really is a green ribbon running north and south through the desert. That's uh, what it is. Fed by the Nile. The Nile is just exactly that. And without the water of the Nile, suddenly it just goes straight back to desert again. So in a way, they treat it almost like a kind of god. You know, they revere it. It's actually the world's longest river. How long is the river? 4,021 miles or something like that. And the big issue is, where is actually the source? Where is the source? I was reading about this, and you covered it in your in your beautiful uh, TV production, but it is sort of uh, a little bit of discussion. Is it in Rwanda or is it in Burundi? Uh, what is your take on that? How do you describe finding the actual source 4,000 miles from that point where the Nile leaves the Mediterranean? Well, I think that Hanning Speak found it, which was that the river really starts to pour itself out from Lake Victoria. Right. That's where it kind of starts. Now, there are lots of little rivers feeding into Lake Victoria. So the stylish thing to do is to find the longest tributary to Lake Victoria oh. and say, that then can be called the Nile. But in my heart, even though we went into the Rwanda, we followed the longest one. And, and you know, we said, that's where it is. It's rising in these great mountains in Rwanda. Okay, so, so really the Nile Secretly, I would say it's Victor- starts I, at Lake Victoria. I would Victoria. say it's Lake Victoria. But I think it does. All the little discussions and the competitions and so on is a matter of tracking all these little feeder rivers that come into this huge lake between Uganda and Tanzania and then yes. finding the longest tributary. And that would be technically the source of the Nile. Kind of technically. But then, you know, part of you would say, well, if it's tipping in to this enormous lake, how can you be sure it's tipping out the other side? <laughs> right. It, well, it might be. <laughs> and the odd thing is it flows north. Not many north. rivers flow north, do they? No, and certainly not many mighty rivers. Most of them come down, you know, the Mississippian things, they kind of flow south. And when we look at maps, because we're, well, mad, we look at them and imagine the north is the top, as it were, and the south is the bottom. And so you'd (laughs) think that gravity, as it were, would kind of pull the water downwards. But anyway, this enormous, mighty river, debatably, and I'm, I'm pretty sure it is the longest river in the world, flows from south to north. And it goes through five immense African countries, Every single one as different as can be, with all their own cultures and histories and climates and peoples. Now, my image, Joanna, is the Nile in Egypt. But when you look at the map, mm. that's just the, the final lap, really. That's just the last bit. In Egypt, it's, it's a ribbon going through the desert. Would you say it's generally a ribbon going through the desert, or is it in lush no. territory otherwise? No, the Sudan, it is a ribbon flowing through the desert of the desert. It's the back Mm. of beyond. It's the Nubian desert. It's ancient, ancient, and really, really sort of sparse and stony and looks like the side of the moon in most of the places. Mm. But then you come into Uganda, where it's as lush and fertile as you can imagine, filled with hippos and great crocodiles and enormous birds, shoebills, and, I mean, everything beauteous, like almost like the Garden of Eden. Mm. And Rwanda, where it's coming down from the high mountains, we were at about, oh, I don't know, 8,000 feet when we found our little source, the tributary into Lake Victoria. It comes from the most complex series of climates, But the ones we think of, really, is the mighty Nile traveling through deserts, really the deserts of Sudan and Egypt. Joanna Lumley is our special guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Before the current political turmoil broke out in Egypt, she filmed an exciting journey along the entire length of the Nile River, from Egypt's Mediterranean coast all the way upstream to its headwaters, 4,000 miles away in the highlands of East Africa. 
Joanna Lumley's Nile is showing on public television, and it's now available as a DVD released by Athena. We have links in this week's show details in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Joanna, you know, the Nile has two branches, and they come together at Khartoum, the capital of the Sudan. Tell us what the difference between the White Nile is and the Blue Nile. The Blue Nile rises in Ethiopia. It comes through very, very steep gorges. It's virtually unnavigable. People have tried. Many people have died in the attempt. It's a very, very rushing and steep and rocky river, hurtling. It brings the strength into the Nile. The White Nile, so-called, which is the lower part of the Nile, before they join together the blue and the white and then become the Nile. The White Nile rises sort of in Lake Victoria, debatably in the hills around there. But then it makes its tranquil, placid way down a few cataracts and waterfalls, but largely moving as a broad and uncomplicated navigable river, mm-hmm. whereas the Blue Nile comes chopping down, bringing the flood waters to Egypt and the Sudan every year when, when the great snows melt and the, you know, the rivers fill with water and come rushing down. They're chalk and cheese, really, those two rivers. Chalk and cheese, white and blue. Joanne, I was yeah. really, uh, I was impressed uh, as you were on this ferry in what seemed like the middle of nowhere and somebody recognized you from your role as a <laughs> Bond girl on Her Majesty's I Secret know. Service. I was wondering, you traveled 4,000 yeah. miles on the Nile and you've got a yeah. Bond girl <laughs> history with your TV and movie career. Just pretend you're going to write a, a James Bond uh, bit. Where on the Nile yeah. would you write a little James Bond bit? It would start almost exactly where that kind person recognized me. When you've You've left the great sophistication and kind of glamorous ancient history of Egypt, the charted area, and suddenly you've crossed Lake Nasser Mm. and you're chopping across Lake Nasser towards the tiny jetty into the Sudan, which is the largest African country by far, and it's just a little jetty, and I think that's exactly where James Bond would be waiting with his eyes narrowed and his hand on on the Beretta tucked into his belt. And there in the distance, in a tank, would be sitting Blofeld, I think. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. And you're right, because it is quite a contrast. You come into, you know, Egypt, and there's resorts, and there's the Aswan Dam, and there's all the this great, grandiose stuff at Luxor. And then you get to the Sudan, which is, I think it's about as big as the United States, but it's only got maybe 100 miles of paved road. And the welcome is this bare basic concrete jetty. Tiny little jetty, yeah. And, and then And James great Bond dusty <laughs> sandy hills and, oh, I mean, pretty thrilling, really. Okay, now you had, well, let's just kind of go through the itinerary. You started in Egypt and you started in Alexandria. What was your take on yeah. Alexandria, the great Egyptian Mediterranean oh, port? Special, special. I'd been to Cairo before, but I'd never been to Alexandria. So it was a great, great thrill to come to a place so full of history. So many of the grandest names in history have been there have lived there, belonged there. It reads like a sort of list of half-god, half-man, you know? And it has this wonderful sort of um, early 20th century history, too, with Art Deco buildings and the, and the intrigue between the wars. Amazing to think, like, four million people live in Alexandria now. I know. It's extraordinary, isn't it? And the feeling that it is a Mediterranean city. Okay, yeah. it's right on the north of North Africa, but it's Mediterranean, and it's got that slightly Mediterranean feel, which disappears almost at once you catch the train and begin to move into the great open farmlands which lead you into Cairo, because by then suddenly you're in an Arab, you're in an Egyptian country. But Alexandria's got a feeling that you're kind of flirting with Nice, you know? You're right. It's got that flavor of the Mediterranean. And then mm. you, you lose that when you go to Cairo, just three hours away by train or something. What yeah. was your take on Cairo? I adored it. I mean, it, it is colossal. It's got 18 million people in it. It's phenomenally large. 
The river is immense at that point, very, very wide, very sleepy, crisscrossed by bridges. Egypt is so full of splendours and wonders. But I think the strangest thing is, is to realise that the Nile used to flow directly underneath mm -hmm. the Great Pyramids. And now, of course, it's pushed right back and it's just a little thin ribbon and all that land, which was great river and empty land, is now crowded up, jostle, 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 the world mm -hmm. growing, pushing up, getting closer and closer to the Great Pyramids. I was there also. It was just before their political upheaval turned deadly. And, and while I was there, I noticed the pyramids, they seemed to draw a line in the sand for Cairo. Well, it's the most strange feeling. I think what it is, is I think they've kind of made, I don't think national park's the right word, but I think they've sort of stopped it and said, this is as far as we go. Added to which, the land they've built on was land that used to be flooded every year by the Nile when, when the great rains came and the, the snows melted. There's more adventure along the Nile River coming right up as Joanna Lumley's voyage takes us from the pyramids of Egypt and the chaos of Cairo to the classic splendor of Luxor and into Sudan, the Nubian Desert, and the wilds of East Africa. And a little later in the hour, we'll check in with your own travel tales at 877-333-RICK. It's travel with Rick Steves. And I'm Colin Clement. أنا أصلا من إدنبرا في اسكتلندا بس أنا عايش في اسكندرية في مصر من 15 سنة وأنا مسافر مع ريك ستيفز. And that was Egyptian Arabic for My name is Colin Clement. I'm originally from Edinburgh, Scotland, but I live in Alexandria, Egypt, and I travel with Rick Steves. أنا اسمي كولن كليمنت أنا أصلا من إدنبرا في اسكتلندا ولكن أنا عايش في اسكندرية من 15 سنة وأنا مسافر مع ريك ستيفز. I'm Rick Steves, and we're working our way up the longest river in the world with Joanna Lumley right now on Travel with Rick Steves. You may know Joanna from her many roles in theater, TV, and film, including as the irrepressible Patsy Stone on Absolutely Fabulous. She's recently produced a travel special that's showing on public television. It's called Joanna Lumley's Nile. It's also available as a DVD set released by Athena. So far, we're on the outskirts of Cairo, on her 4,000-mile journey to the source of the Nile River. Joanna, it's so fun to hear your experiences in Egypt, and it was so much fun to watch you on your camel, clip-clopping your way right up to the pyramids. It's something I've always wanted to do, going from the outskirts of Cairo, and you were on a camel named Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown is the most beautiful creature. I spoke very low, and I spoke in a very deep voice. Animals quite, they don't like shrill noises. This is Charlie. Hello, Charlie. How old is Charlie? And I spoke very softly to Charlie, and I told him how handsome he was. He looks absolutely beautiful. And he kissed me with his whiskery, whiskery face. Mm, that was a lovely munching kind of kiss. <laughs> and then he was very kind to me, and his owner said he really likes you. Mm. And so I felt extremely happy with him, even when I had to cross a motorway, Rick. And I thought, you know, sail before steam, I hope they'll stop. And indeed the cars <laughs> all quietly came to a halt as we went on the great ships of the desert crossing across these motorways. You know, you, you, you mentioned they, they fold up like a leatherman. And I just think that yes. is the greatest description. I mean, most of us know what a <laughs> leatherman is, that, that multifaceted tool we can stick in our tool belt or in our pocket. And That's then you right. showed it and the camel collapses. Uh, describe how that works. Just beautiful. They sort of fold up. They go down the front first and their great, beautiful knees buckle up under them. Then the back legs snap up, and suddenly they're, after a huge jolt, and at one point you're 45 degrees to the ground if you're sitting on the, on the saddle, and then suddenly you're back to normal again, mm. and you just swing your leg over and can slip down. 
Now, you took the night train from Cairo down to Luxor, and then yeah. you got on the boat and sailed to, uh, and I love the approach you had to Aswan, and then, and then from there, Abu Simbel. Can you talk a little bit about that stretch of the Nile? Well, the, the train journey was lovely, but it was a sort of overnight train, and that lovely impatience you have when you're traveling in the darkness, you can't really see what, what it's like. You get the odd glimpse of, of the river, but you couldn't really see where you were. And then suddenly arriving at Luxor the next morning with all the glories of that mm. phenomenal place. I mean, dear people listening, if you haven't been to Luxor, save up every penny you've got mm-hmm. and get up there, get to Egypt, and somehow get to Luxor because oh, you won't yeah. be disappointed. We're cruising down the Nile River, the lifeline of civilizations for thousands of years with Joanna Lumley. American audiences probably know her best for her role as Patsy Stone on the hit Britcom Absolutely Fabulous. A DVD set of Joanna Lumley's Nile has recently been released in the U.S. by Athena. Don't you rather love that possessive way I've called it my Nile, Joanna Lumley's Nile? Joanna Lumley's Nile. Nile. (laughs) Well, I, you know, you are such an elegant person, and at the same time, from watching your video, it just seemed like you were a beautiful traveler as as well. And there's that very interesting mix. You're surrounded by people sleeping on the deck, literally, and you're mm. sitting there being very thoughtful and poetic and composed. Describe what it was like to sail across this giant Lake Nasser. That's the largest man-made lake in the world, I understand, past where the Nile backs up after the Aswan Dam, which was built in 1970 to control the floods uh, that, that really bring life to, to Egypt. Rick, it's like an inland sea. It really is. I mean, the scale of that mighty place is just enormous. Half the time, you can't see the other side of it. Wow. So when we when we call it Lake Nasser, it's kind of sea Nasser, really. It's immense. And setting off in the darkness in a really rattling old tin tub of a ship, crammed with people, 500 people crammed on, with all their goods and chattels, everything that people were bringing down from Egypt into the Sudan to bring back to their families with stuff that they'd bought and having, having worked abroad and so on, bringing treats to their families. And it was stiflingly hot downstairs mm. where you ate the favorite food there, which is called ful, <laughs> F-O-U-L, which is beans. It's like baked beans, but without the tomato sauce. They're very delicious, slightly larger white beans, and they're, they're actually a good and nourishing meal. And as I'm a vegetarian, they suited me down to the ground. But it was so hot downstairs, I thought, I might just go up and sit on the deck for a bit. Well... Everybody had the same idea. So everybody in the world was sleeping on the deck with their blankets out and their mats, sometimes a little transistor radio playing, lots of men, some saying their prayers. And I found a little tiny strip which had several cockroaches running about <laughs> in it. And I thought if I just hunker down here, I can probably have a calm night, put my kit bag under my head and shoulders. And it was so hot you didn't need a cover. Just lay down there and actually it was lovely. Joanna, you... You look like a movie star when you're traveling through Egypt, even if you're wearing your your, uh, your khakis and so on. How was it, surrounded by working-class men on this working-class boat, sleeping on the decks, surrounded by 50 men? I mean, it's a man's world. You're not just a woman. You're the stately woman from the rich world. Did you feel comfortable? They're very respectful. They're extremely respectful people. And because I respect them, so I always keep... For instance, in an Islamic country, you always keep yourself covered up if you're a woman. Mm -hmm. So you don't have naked arms and legs Mm -hmm. and things. And you don't have a a dipping front. You know, you keep yourself covered Mm -hmm. and always have a scarf ready to cover your hair if if Mm -hmm. people would rather it was that way. It's the easiest way of traveling. And if you're courteous to them and remember to say shukran and thank you and all the nice, polite words, and they can tell by your demeanor that you respect them and are so proud to be in their country and happy to be there. And they're always courteous back again. But remember, I've traveled. I'm a traveler. And we were traveling light. There are only six of us on these things. There's a couple of cameramen, sound recordist, 
the director, the producer, and me. Mm-hmm. And then we, you meet up with your fixer, your dragoman, your interpreter, as it were, in each place that you go to, who right. can speak the local language and knows how to sort things out. But we travel so light, so I carry all my clothes rolled up in bags yeah. and stick on my makeup by candlelight and things, and it's fine. The point is you can be elegant and... Uh presentable for TV, you know. At the same time, you can be very modest and respectful of the local uh, sensibilities. Right. And I think you, you nailed it. It was really impressive. I'm so pleased. You had an adventure with some crocodiles. Tell us, if that must have been a fun part of your adventure. Well, meeting somebody, first of all, meeting somebody who'd been damaged by a crocodile. We were determined in this film. The Nile crocodile is one of the most famous animals on Earth. It's the one that Tarzan wrestled with in the rivers. You know, they grow to be, I don't know, 18-foot-long absolutely unbelievably huge and we had to try to find Nile crocodiles for our film because we thought it would be so nice well we looked and looked in Egypt and in the Sudan and we couldn't find anything mm. we could see footprints we could see this and that I saw an old man who'd been badly injured by a crocodile he told me the story with an old crocodile skeleton but it wasn't until we reached Uganda where we saw them basking in all their majestic glory I love them, Rick. I hate it. I'm sorry to say this. I don't like people killing them Mm -hmm. just so they can have a crocodile bag. Mm -hmm. These are great creatures who've been roaming the earth for four million years, Mm -hmm. far longer than we've been around. Mm -hmm. And they are prehistoric, and they have as much right to be here as we do. Anyway, to see them keeping their mouths wide open to let the cool air Mm -hmm. flow into their bodies and to see them slipping with a slight bubble from the nostril into the, <sighs> into the river and then just slip, 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 and you think, ooh, I'll keep my hand out of the water. Joanna Lumley's Nile is the name of the video set and the TV special that Joanna produced from her 4,000-mile trek up the entire length of the Nile River. She's our special guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves as she shares highlights from this trip of a lifetime where she traveled by fishing boat ferry, cruise ship, plane, train, car, and inflatable speedboat all the way to the recently discovered source of the Nile River. Joanna, you also talked vividly about uh, going through the Nubian Desert and then visiting uh, the pyramids of the Black Pharaohs. Tell us about that. Yes. Well, this is extraordinary. There are more pyramids outside Egypt in the Sudan than there are inside Egypt. These are differently shaped ones, and where we were in Karima, one of the holiest and most extraordinary little sort of respected townships on the edge of the Nile, right out in the desert, right out in the Nubian desert, where the holy mountain Jebel Barker is. And Karima was the capital of the whole region. From Karima ran the whole of this great Egyptian Mm. empire. All the pharaohs came from that region and were black, Sudanese, beautiful people who were pharaohs for just generations. And they seem to have been sort of left out of it because their people were buried back in Karima, in the Sudan. And I went down into a couple of the tombs, which haven't been plundered, but which are, honestly, you can just you just walk across the desert to them. Mm. There's no, you know, entrance fee, and there are no guards, there's nothing. The big clanging gate and an old man called Mohammed who lets you in. With torchlight, you can see the mm. beauty of these burial chambers. We went to a queen's burial chamber with stars on the sky and a painting of her as a corpse. And then on the other side... Her smelling the ankh, which I will spell A-N-K-H if people Mm -hmm. want to look it up, that beautiful symbol which became a hippie symbol in the 60s -hmm. of eternal life, Mm -hmm. like a kind of loop with a cross across it. The god holds it to the queen's nose and suddenly there was a painting of her reinvigorated, life brought back to her. So they believed in life after death as well. Extraordinary. Would these be Nubians? These are Nubians, yeah. It is fascinating to think that pharaohs were from Nubia and they were Nubian today 
Nubians are are darker-skinned minority in Egypt anyways, and they have traditional villages. But if you want to see the idyllic, you know, time-past village life on the Nile, apparently uh, the Nubian villages are really something. And then then you climbed with the Nubians up their holy mountain. Up to the holy mountain, Jabal Barka. And it was just fantastic. Every Friday on the Muslim holy day, they climb up there. And there was a couple of young newlyweds when you get married. Mm. It's one of the things you do. You climb the mountain and watch the sunset from up there. Mm. There was such a lovely chitter-chattering of little children who, of course, run straight up it. And I was with the old village elder who'd looked after me. And we went up hand in hand, puffing and panting. He said rather charmingly, when I get to 60, I I shall be feel that I'm climbing the mountain. I didn't say to him, I'm 63 already. <laughs> oh, man. I was so inspired by that whole... Uh, it must have been oh. early in the morning or late at night when you're, you're No, climbing. it was late at night. It was the sun setting, Rick. It was, it was just a truly, <laughs> honestly, transcendental feeling. Was crossing borders pretty straightforward? Did you have reservations yes. and visas and so on? Or did you just show yeah, up well, and we talk were. your way through? No, no, no. We were visa up to the nostrils. We'd got every kind of pass and permit and photograph and extra pieces of paper. And, of course, remember, we're carrying a lot of camera equipment. And did it all work because you did, you, you, you did all your due uh, diligence? Did you pretty much skip right through the borders? Well, skip might be a bit of an, <laughs> an enchanting word to use. But we got through and there was no problems. The only, the only time we had a problem, funnily enough, was in Uganda, hmm. where for some unbelievable reason, I'd left my yellow fever certificate behind. Mm. And they brought out of a ghastly, what seemed to be a rusty old box, a vast needle and said, oh. we will inject you here. And I went, holy smoke, oh. please don't do that. So we phoned back and we had mine found and faxed through, but that was oh. a bit of a delay. And I thought, never, ever travel without your vaccination. I didn't know they still need that. You still need the vaccination card yeah. for these countries. Yeah, you do. And if you absolutely. don't have it, they bring out the well-used needle. and uh, you, They do. <laughs> or, or, you're, or you're not allowed in. Yeah. I've seen it on, on crossing over to India at the borders. They've got yeah. these guys that come once yes. a day with their well-used needles, and you're wise to get your shots. Joanna, Lake Nasser is the biggest lake in the world, but it's man-made, and it feels like a reservoir in a lot of ways. How does Lake Victoria differ? Oh, it's staggering. Because I think Lake Victoria would be more that Eden feel. I think it's got that Eden feel because it is... Lake Nasser, remember, is man-made, and therefore, although some bits grow a little bit now on the, on the edges, it's largely within the desert. It's a reservoir in the middle of a desert with the great Temple of Abu Simbel rising, mm. you know, saved from the, from the depths to be put up there. But Lake Victoria is, oh, it's kind of paradise. It, you've got everything. You've got every kind of animal on God's earth, butterflies and flowers and birds that you can't believe. Mm. The beauty of it, there's the calm, sweet feeling that you can just swim in it, that you can fish in it, you can laze on it, you can sit in a houseboat, you can travel on it. I don't know. There's something wonderful about Lake Victoria. But you see, the great Victorians came. Nobody could follow the Nile. This is the thing about it, Brick. In the old days, people travelled down. The Egyptians, the Greeks, everybody was looking for the source of the Nile. So they all came down through Egypt into the Sudan. That's where the Nile is met by this colossal 14-mile deep swamp called the Sud, S-U-D-D. Mm. Photographed in the air, it looks like something out of from outer space. You just can't fathom how wide it is, made of papyrus islands which float and tiny mm-hmm. weird little things. It's a bed of mosquitoes. It's staggeringly beautiful and absolutely lethal. Mm. And the river seems to lose its way and it just becomes this colossal, uh, on a scale that you a can't lot of the, I understand a lot of the actual bulk of the Nile or the flow of the Nile actually evaporates there sometimes. Evaporates Because there. it's so spread And dissipates out. itself there. Right. But then somehow, having flowed north from the Sudan into mm. that, from southern Sudan into that, in northern Sudan, 
Somehow it collects itself, and at the end, it combs its hair sideways, <laughs> puts on its jacket again, comes out and says, I'm the Nile. The mighty Nile. <laughs> you know, Joanna, there's a lot of concern about the safety of women or how, how women are welcomed in Muslim countries that, that you traveled through here. What was your take, uh, being a woman in these countries? What was the vibe? Uh, how was your reception? Immensely respectful. I mean, depending on it, what's how religious people are, you'll find people in cities are friendly and shake hands. Sometimes the more religious Muslims won't, it's discourteous to touch a woman's hand. Women mm-hmm. can greet each other. So right. I had lots of hugs from grannies and young girls mm-hmm. and young women and things like that. But if you learn these things and always look around and always err on the side of modesty, mm. you know, behave properly, don't be bold, you know, don't right. be cheeky, don't be sort of... Right. Lippy, don't behave in a Western way because that's not how it is out there. So leave your shorts behind and your sleeveless blouses. Leave them behind. Joanna, the culmination of this long trip, 4,000 miles from the Mediterranean, was actually getting to whatever you determined the source of the Nile was, the longest tributary coming into Lake Victoria before the mighty Nile heads out of Lake Victoria. Tell us just that last little triumph. What was it like to find what you considered the source of the Nile? Well, it was extraordinary. The three men who determined that this was the longest source of the Nile are called, their nicknames, the Three Macs, because they're three New Zealanders who all have Scottish names, Maclay, Mackenzie, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. They were absolutely fantastic, and they had sorted out and sourced it and done it. And so Cam Maclay decided to lead us inland and upriver up to the final, final bit. I think we thought this will be a little bit of a stroll in the park. I think we thought it might be a path by a sweet mountain stream, and we'd film it in five minutes and sit down and have a picnic. (laughs) Well, it turned out to be a fight through the most hellish primeval jungle you've ever come across. You had hip boots on, didn't you? toppling trees. We couldn't climb half the trees that had tumbled (laughs) down. We were in swamp and mud up to our knees, sucking the boots off. We were walking through soldier ants, which we couldn't film because the cameraman dropped the camera screaming with us as we were swarmed over by biting soldier ants. I tore off my jacket and just flung it into the undergrowth it was crawling with ants wow. they crept up in my hair boot I mean, sucking we were mud bitten. oh boot sucking mud but then at the end and having taken a couple of false turns so we were virtually on our knees suddenly in a little glade in a little grove there was a little sweet homemade sign tapped in rather like something in Winnie the Pooh which just said this is the longest source of the Nile and there it was a tiny tiny trickle coming out of the ground at about we were at about 8,000 feet this little tiny bit of river, well, river, I mean, if you'd poured it out of a teacup, <laughs> it would have been more than what, what was coming out of the ground there, Rick. Oh. But the thrill of standing there at the source of the and having been at exactly the other end as it tipped itself into the, oh. into the Mediterranean. Oh, yeah. And having traveled all the way from Rosetta, the town where the Nile hits the Mediterranean, yes. you yes. did the whole thing. And you captured it thing. on film and you're sharing it with us. Joanna Lumley, your new DVD or your DVD of your experience is now available in the United States. It's Joanna Lumley's Nile. Thank you very much for sharing this beautiful adventure. Thank you so much, Rick. And as Patsy would say, cheers, sweetie. Thanks a lot. Okay, what absolutely fabulous adventures have you been on lately? 
Let's open up the phone lines now. We're at 877-333-7425 as we check in for some fresh listener travel reports. Our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. Oh, fantastic. You don't have to have a TV crew with you in order to experience some great travel adventures of your own. Let's check in with some of our listeners at 877-333-7425 right now to hear where your travels have been taking you and what they've taught you about our world. Eric, who's from Murphy, North Carolina, is in China now, and he emailed us in the middle of a long-term, low-budget trip across Asia and Europe. Eric, thanks for joining us. Now, first off, where in China are you, and how long have you been so far away from home? Uh, right now, I'm in Shenwei, China, in the south, hitchhiking around. I've been traveling the last few years as an international NGO worker. When I was working in Cambodia, I opened my house up to couch surfers, and about 250 of them stayed with me. They told me about their travels around the world, and they got me excited about it. So when I finished my contract, I started hitchhiking and traveling around, too. I huh. went from village to village, city to city, through 21 countries, literally all the way around the world. And in total, I guess my budget was about $2,000 for the year. $2,000 for the whole year? Well, maybe a few hundred dollars more than that. But yeah, $2,000. About half of that goes towards the plane tickets, and the rest of it pretty much covers food. Uh, Housing was free everywhere I went because I stayed completely with the locals. I hitchhiked, so transportation was completely free. And food, as you might imagine, is very cheap in most countries. I am so jealous. I, not that I could even do this, but that people still do this. You've, you're just on the road indefinitely, spending a couple thousand dollars a year. And let's talk just a minute, Eric, about your transportation and your accommodations. First of all, you're hitchhiking. You actually, when you want to go somewhere, you do the old-fashioned go out to the road out of town and stick out your thumb. How does that work? Well, it works really well. I mean, when I lived in Cambodia, I hosted all these couch surfers, and they told me that I could do it. And, you know, I was skeptical. I thought it, it would be difficult. And then when I went to Thailand, I started doing it, and I started going from city to city, and then I did it across India, and then I did it through the Caucasus, through Turkey, through Europe, through the United States, and it's really easy. All you have to do is go to a place where you can people can see you. Right. The best place, of course, is a gas station where you can actually talk to them. Right. Hold your thumb out, and people will pick you up. Yeah. Uh, in most countries, I never wait very long at all. So this is like a subculture, people who go couch surfing and they share information and inspire and embolden each other to go out there and vagabond around the world. Yeah, there's actually quite a lot of us. Uh, You'd be surprised, but once you start traveling, you just start meeting them and meeting them, and there's quite a lot of them. They're all amazing people. So my readers spend in two weeks for hotels alone what you spend in an entire year traveling all around the world. Now, you said when you're hitchhiking, it's rare that somebody doesn't invite you home for the night. Tell us about scoring free places to sleep. So, of course, when I'm hitchhiking, which is all the time, people will normally invite me home. Um, I would say about 90% of the time they'll invite me home without me saying anything. Of course, if it's evening and they haven't said anything, sometimes I might mention, you know, I'm, I'm looking for a place to sleep. And I would say about the other 5% of the time I'll be invited. So that's 95% right there. Then there's the last 5%. The last 5% is where I really don't have a place to stay. And when this happens, what I do is I go to the village. I just go to someone's door. I knock on it, and I say, hello, I'm a traveler here. Can I stay with you? And in country after country, everyone says yes. I said, I've done this in no less than a dozen countries, and I've had no problems ever. I always get accepted. That is incredible. I can see this happening in the developing world. Do you do it also in the first world? 
I've done it in a few countries in Europe uh, and even a bit in the United States. It's not literally always knocking on the door. Sometimes it is. Mm-hmm. I can talk about one of my friends. I told him about this idea, and now he's backpacking through uh, America, and he's been doing it in America. He tells me it works really well. Uh, people let him stay in their garages all the time, for example. Now, you said in Western Europe you hook up with squatters. Tell us about that. When I was hosting people in Cambodia, I met a lot of interesting people, and some of them were squatters. So they introduced me to the squatting community in Western Europe. In Western Europe, I guess I stayed in cities more than villages, so I needed a new way to do everything. So what I did instead is I went to the different squatting communities around a few different cities in France and Netherlands and Germany, and I made a lot of great people there. Now, what do you say about people who just think, that is dangerous, no way on earth would I ever do that, I'll get knifed in the darkness? You know, I thought these things at one point, but you know, it's not true. You know, the world is so amazingly full of love. Everywhere I go, people come and they help me. They show me around. They want to be my friends. They want to be my family. The people I've met in these villages, they're not just strangers anymore. Right. You know, I, I contact them. I love them. You know, these people, sometimes I would stay with them for a week because I would have such a great time with them, learning their culture. We're talking with Eric from Murphy, North Carolina, who really is Eric from the world, and he is vagabonding endlessly around the world on about $2,000 a year. Eric, I'm, I'm sold on all of this so far, but you also mentioned that you uh, learned to dumpster dive. And uh, as a budget traveler, it has occurred to me there's a lot of good food just sitting there, and those people who put it there don't have diseases, and I could just eat it, and you do that. Yes, so when I was staying with the squatters in Europe... Uh, they would take me around to the different dumpsters, and they would show me that in Europe, the food's actually really clean in the dumpsters. I was really surprised. Like, the vegetables would be completely separate from all the other food, and sometimes they'll be completely wrapped in saran wrap. It looks clean. It is clean. In other cases, um, we would just go up to local vendors at the end of the evening and right. say, hey, so you have, you know, 10 pounds of bread because it's a bakery. <laughs> and, the bake- and we would simply say, can we have it? <laughs> and, of course, they would always say yes. Are you writing up this in your Facebook page? Uh, I have a blog, yourworldyourhome.com, and I do try to keep some of my stories on it. Yourworldyourhome.com. That's pretty easy. And Mm -hmm. Eric, how long do you think you're going to be on the road now before you go back to exotic North Carolina? Um, I'm pretty sure I'll be on the road indefinitely. Um, I go in between traveling and working. Okay. And when you go back to North Carolina, you're going to have a tough time settling back down. (laughs) Well... (laughs) So last year, during my trip around the world, I I did make it to the U.S., and I did visit my home, and it was difficult. It was like a completely different culture. Uh, My accent had changed. My ideas had changed, my beliefs, my philosophy, the food I love. It was difficult going back to the old foods. Instead, I started making all the foods from around the world, introducing my family, you know, endless exotic cuisines. I just think it's so inspirational. So, Eric, um, check in with us again later, if you don't mind, and uh, we'll stay tuned to your blog, okay? All right, thank you. All right, take care. Happy travels. We're checking in with you, our listeners, for inspiring tales of memorable travels at 877-333-RICK. You can also post a travel report or comment on a show you've heard in our listener feedback forum. That's in the radio section of ricksteves.com. And Sally's on the line in Lavelle, Pennsylvania. Sally, thanks for your call. Thank you, Rick. Um, Three years ago, I solo-trekked to Volterra, Italy, and to my delight, a cycle race was expected while I was there. So being an avid photographer, I well-poised myself to photograph from a ledge of a church just above where I saw a refreshment 
station, so I thought for sure they'd be coming by. The cyclists arrived in mass, and I noticed that they couldn't keep up with refilling the cups, and the man in charge saw me standing there <laughs> and <laughs> desperately <Help> motioned <laughs> for me to hop off my ledge, put down my camera, and dive in. <laughs> now, we should, let our, we should let our listeners know you're in Volterra here, which is one of my very favorite hill towns in Italy. Volterra, ah. Volterra is a, kind of between Siena and Florence, uh, near San Gimignano, and it is a great town. And you, you went there on, on a bicycle yourself? Uh, no, I, I took a bus and stayed in that wonderful monastery you recommended. Oh, yeah. And while I was standing overlooking the Tuscan countryside, as you know, from that beautiful wall overlook, mm-hmm. I chatted with a few cyclists who mentioned this race coming through. So as I filled all the drinking cups and was actually handing them to passing cyclists, I was caught up in this fray of uh, several hundred cute Italian cycle guys. <laughs> Wonderful. Talk and about one it. even stopped to uh, have a photograph with me. Huh. And at the end, the guy in charge invited me to enjoy the remnant of all these wonderful Sicilian blood oranges, which I adore. Oh. And I just had such a sense of how diving into and being part of the culture is so much more enjoyable than being a mere spectator photographing. Well, if you're willing to jump in when you get a little opening in the door like that, that's part of good travel, isn't it? Yeah, it, it was certainly a delight. Thanks for sharing. <laughs> you're welcome, Rick. Okay, take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Carolyn from Opelika, Alabama, heard the interview with our Swedish tour guide, Osa Danielson, about Stockholm. And she shares this memory that taught her something about herself. In Alabama, close friends greet each other with the word, Hey. When we visited Europe, we found that in Sweden, when we met complete strangers, such as salespeople greeting us when we entered their store, they'd use a word that sounded exactly like our familiar greeting. Hey, I hadn't even realized that we Alabamans had such a distinct and familiar form of greeting each other until I heard these friendly Swedes greeting us with the same word, and it sounded like they were our good friends from back home. Hey. hey. Where have your travels taken you lately? Tell us all about your own trip of a lifetime or the surprises you've found on an overseas adventure. Our number at Travel with Rick Steves is 877-333-7425. And you can reach us by email anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. Joe's on the line in Santa Rosa, California. Joe, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. It's great to speak with you. Uh, We were in Munich in 1972 to the Olympics, and we ran a microbus and drove through many countries, then we finally went over to Prague, which was my, my homeland, and being a, a young individual, we had not been that knowledgeable about what was happening in that country during the time in which they were being taken care of by the, the Russians. So this was a time when, when Prague was in a bleak communist sort of situation, oh, and yes. where there was a lot of people who were living reminders of World War II, and where many people remembered the the horrors brought upon them by the Nazis. Right. So we were trying to find where my great-uncle lived and were asking the people who were walking home if they could help us find this place, and we were speaking in German, and they just wouldn't even respond to us. And finally we met an older gentleman who was also walking home, and... We asked him, and he said, oh, don't you understand that 
this is not the language to speak in this country. Wow. And we showed him where we were wanting to go. He got in the, the microbus and said, here, let me take you there. And it was just a wonderful thing to be able to have this person take us there to finally make contact with our, our relatives. And learn at the same time of the difficult heritage they had yeah. and uh, not wanting to speak German. I think we need to remember that there is a, a whole um, generation that was forced to speak German in the Czech Republic. And then after that, there was a whole generation that was forced to speak Russian. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, much later, if you went back to the Czech Republic and you talked to people in Russian, they may understand you, but they wouldn't want to. They'd rather struggle with, uh, with English, I think, yeah. because they didn't have that uh, uh, difficult colonial time. Uh, with English language. All right, Joe from Santa Rosa, thanks for your call. Thank you very much. Bye now. Bye now. Denise is calling in from Weatherford, Oklahoma. Denise, thanks for your call. Thanks, Rick, for having me. Uh, well, my husband and I went on a 30th anniversary trip, and we went to both Israel and to Jordan. Both of those places don't have a lot of public transportation. So we had to uh, learn to get around on our own, and we rented a car for most of the time we were in Israel, but we had a great time and did it all on our own and got to meet a lot of people and see so many things that we couldn't have seen if we would have gone on a tour, even though that's what everyone told us, you, you know, it wouldn't be safe, you've got to go on a tour. Uh, we had just a fantastic time on our own. You know, we didn't have any trouble at all. As an American... You know, we can flash our passport, and we can go into Palestinian territory, or we can go into Israeli places, and, you know, we have the best of both worlds, because we could go both places. You know, I found that when I was going from Jordan to Israel, it felt like a refugee camp at the border, but I pulled out my American passport, and it was the oddest thing. It was like the, the Red Sea parted, and I could walk right through it. I just felt... Right, it's like your magic ticket. <laughs> I, I forgot how powerful that was, and it doesn't seem fair, but we're lucky we've got that passport and we come from a country that everybody wants to take care of, I guess. That's right. But we had some things that we wanted to do and see. We couldn't find a tour that allowed us to do all that. And, you know, we got to kayak on the River Jordan and we got to snorkel in the Red Sea. And, you know, when we went to Jordan, we were the first people in Petra that day. We had the whole oh. place to ourselves. What's that like? That's the probably the major site I want to see in, in the Middle East and even all of the whole Mediterranean area is Petra. Well, we got there about 6 a.m. And you want to get there early because the light is rich and the colors are popping, right? And you get the whole place to yourself. It's just magical. Is it cave dwellings? Is it medieval? Tell us a little bit what Petra is. Petra is, there's facades that are actually chiseled into the walls of the, of the mountain sides. Just such delicate chiseling, and everything is symmetrical. I mean, how it was done 2,000 years ago, we just can't even imagine how they did this. And they're, they're so big, too. Mm -hmm. When you stand in front of them, you're just tiny. So did you feel comfortable? I mean, you, you look at the news and you think, you know, you should be wearing a flak vest. At one time we were about a, a mile from the Lebanon border. At another time we were, you know, about a mile from Syria. We were driving. At one point we saw some tanks in a, in a wooded area that had camouflage netting over them and we thought, hmm, I wonder if we should be here. Maybe we should be careful about proceeding, yeah. Yeah. But generally, did you find people were uptight or were they welcoming and, and casual? Um, 
they were casual. We enjoyed our time more like in around the Sea of Galilee area. Uh-huh. That would seem to be a friendlier area. Jerusalem is so touristy. There's you know, there's so many people trying to make a buck off tourists. That's the feeling I had, was everybody was trying to sell you stuff in Jerusalem. It wasn't quite as friendly and as welcoming. So we felt really, we really loved the Galilean area. Now, you rode an Arab bus into Bethlehem. What was that like? You just buy a ticket, get on the bus. You're going to be, you know, we were the only non-Arabs that were on that bus. But what does that feel like? Did you feel comfortable, or was everybody staring at you? We definitely felt like we were in the minority, and there's a, you know, there's a language barrier there. There's not too many English speakers. I've, I've heard people can actually spend the night in a Bedouin tent and this sort of thing. We did, and that was actually in Jordan. That was a highlight for us. And I must say, Jordanians don't speak a lot of English, but if a Jordanian knows one English word, it's the word welcome. And every time they find out you're an English speaker, they're, you know, welcome, over and over. Welcome. What was it like? Why was that a highlight? I, I mean, it's basically, you feel like you're sleeping in the desert in a tent? Oh, you are in the middle of the desert. You're in the middle of Wadi Rum Desert. And they um, took us in a pickup with kind of a little sheet over the back for shade and took us over the desert to the campground, which was like um, an hour or two drive into the desert. We were kind of at the end of the travel season, so we're the only people staying at the camp that night. They could have maybe 15 or 20 at the peak of season, but we were the only two. They fixed this wonderful meal that they actually make in layers underground with charcoal underground that's cooking it. They bring it out of the ground. It's something called zarb. And then we feasted, just the two of us, feasted on this wonderful meal. And then we had this wonderful conversation with the owner of this camp, We talked politics and religion and world relations and had a wonderful time. And then we had a tent that we stayed in, and just a wonderful, you could see the stars like you've never seen it kind of night. And basically you trusted people, you were on your own, you were exposed, and uh, sounds like it worked out great. Yeah, we had great fun, and and I'd highly recommend it. Thanks, Denisa, for uh, this report. It's got me thinking about Israel and Jordan. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac kaplan Wolner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to the BBC in London for their studio help this week. Rick has recorded walking tours to many of Europe's most popular destinations. Look in the radio section of ricksteves.com for a link to Rick's audio tour app. When you're traveling, you can find out when other stations air travel with Rick Steves. Look online for our affiliate listings in the radio section of ricksteves.com. We'll look for you again next week with more travel with Rick Steves. Each year, Rick Steves tour guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours all over Europe, one small group at a time. Choose from three dozen exciting itineraries covering the best of Europe from Ireland to Istanbul Paris to St. Petersburg, and practically everywhere in between. For a free catalogue and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.